Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, freelance writer and professional photographer Roger Valaitos examines the theories and myths about Avebury and compares the beliefs of those who manage the site with others who claim it as their traditional shrine. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you for the introduction. I should probably add that, um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not native-born. Um, I was introduced to Avebury by a friend as, as a surprise one dawn in 1968. And I have visited it ever since. And I've been living there for the past six years. Um, I, it amounted to something of an obsession to me. And I probably know every, all of the 320 people who live there, some of the old families, some of the new ones. In Avebury, people like me are called blow-ins. And I believe that I share that distinction with anybody whose grandparents weren't born there. So it's, it's a quintessentially English village. Um, I keep trying to persuade them, although I don't have any success, that... Blow-ins are some of the nicest things that you can have in a garden. Unexpected surprises. Um, And that there was a woman um, called Ellen Wilmot who actually scattered seeds of her particular holly, um, sea holly, around, and it became known as Miss Wilmot's Ghost. Nobody knew where it was going to come from, but she scattered them. And I like to think of myself as Miss Wilmot's Ghost. Um, Anyhow, I'm going to kick off today, and we've got 45 minutes, and then I'm... By all means, if any of you find that you've got ants in your pants and I'm driving you nuts, do interrupt. Otherwise, we'll take questions later. Oh, I should say, how many people have actually visited Avery? Excellent. (laughs) Now, I'm very keen to get you exercising your hearts. So how many people have visited more than once? There we go. Now, the statistics we have for it as a site is that people go repeatedly. Um, this is a shot, of, not photoshopped or anything, of a storm about to hit Avebury, and it's taken from the window of the house in which I live. So I feel very privileged to be there. And, and so I look out my front window, and I see the circle, and I look out my back window, and I see it too. So I'm very much part of it. And, um, and I, but this is an overview, not my own photograph, the aerial photographs I borrowed. Um, and shows it pretty well in the landscape. um, It doesn't include the rest of the complex, of course. And as most of you will know, it's managed by a triumvirate of National Trust, English Heritage, and UNESCO's World Heritage Sites. There is also a parish council um, who would be upset that I haven't actually put their name down there. Um, And most of the people on the parish council are not blow-ins. They've been there for generations. The families have, anyway. So who built it, and how and why? Now, have any of you, when you've been to Avery, gone up to see the landscape around, gone to the the grey weather, so-called? See this? One or two. Okay, it's a fascinating area. There are accounts that during the 19th century, some of these, the the Sarsons were so... so thick on the ground that people used to bet that they could run from Avebury to Marlborough four and a half miles without touching grass. 
Um, whether that's a true story, I don't know. It could be apocryphal. However, there are only isolated places where you find them still. And you can see in the foreground here that one of these stones has been split. And what we, ha we had an industry of sarsen splitters who came. Sarsens were incredibly useful for making the curb stones for the Great Western Railway, aggregates, um, also very, very good for um, cobblestones. And they were more or less cleared out except for a few isolated pockets. But these, I think, are very evocative. This road, which crosses the downs, and there are several pockets of gray weathers there, including in these trees around us. If you go into those woods, you find it full of sarsens. Um, this road is the old London to Bath coach road. And it's also uh, the road on which many of the sarsens seem to have been dragged down. We can see the ruts and going up the side of the hill, although you can't see from this photograph. And um, it's the road down which many of the, the famous people who gave us whatever, the, the first people who discovered Avery and who were fascinated by it came down. Now, an estimated 500 sarsens were erected, dragged down. Some of them were dragged even further, 25 miles to Stonehenge. They think most of them came from up the Greyweathers around the Avery complex. And its henge, the bank and ditch, the def defining aspect of a henge is that the ditch is on the inside not on the outside, as in Stonehenge, which is not, strictly speaking, a henge. It's a burn. But this one is so extraordinary. Um, it was so deep, and it's a, it's a marvel of, of civil engineering. And it's 18 times larger than Stonehenge itself. These are some photographs taken um, by an, an, an early 19th century archaeologist showing how far it went down. I think the interesting feature was that if you planted a telegraph pole 60 feet, you would not be able to see the top from the edge until you came to it. It's extraordinary, extraordinarily deep. And it goes down in the hard chalk to a fine section. <coughs> now, it's interesting that uh, some people like to think that th this ditch was a moat. Um, there's no evidence that it was puddled in any way to hold the water. When chalk rots, it turns into clay. It's an awful lot of clay in Wiltshire. And um, there is certainly clay at the bottom, but this is an uh, amazing thing. Did anybody else find it amazing that they've done this? They didn't have television, you see. <laughs> um, these, co these are the cove stones, so named by William Stukeley. We'll get to him later. Um, they go down, these particular ones go down as far as the above as they go down below. And when recently, in the past 10 years, they were trying to straighten them, they found that um, the, certainly the one on the right, having straightened it, it just slipped right back into its old position. They couldn't, and finally they left it there. They thought it'll last another 2,000 years, or 4,000 years, rather. Um, The avenue, it has an interesting feature in the, in the alignment of the stones. There's one avenue which, we can, which has been raised uh, in the 1930s and 40s, and you will find there pairs of stones. 
which are generally described, described as lozenges or lingam shape. Um, we th- it is assumed that this relates to some sort of procession, fertility procession, down the avenue. It, also, the avenue is not straight. It jinks terrifically. It's very serpentine. Um, one of the other interesting features about the sarsens at Avebury is that a sarsen, because it's a sedimentary rock, has got a smooth side and a rough side. And in general, what they did was they arranged the stone so that the smooth side was facing inwards. Again, it's a sense of... We can only suppose and project, though it's a sense of trying to contain and frame some sort of ceremonial. Now, this is um, Silbury Hill. Has anybody been there? Um, um, I photographed it in the snow, particularly like this, because there is a, a wide um, body of belief that it was a gleaming white chalk monument. Um, as you know, it's, 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 it's 130 feet high. It is really quite extraordinary. It overlaps with the pyramid building period in Egypt. In fact, I think one, it's had four excavations. One of them was by Sir Flinders Petrie, who was the Egyptologist, who presumed that he would find a chamber inside exactly like the... the and went at the same trajectory as he, would, as he expected he, to find in a, in a pyramid and didn't. Um, what the excavation seemed to point to is that every time it was enlarged, three times, um, the turf was taken off and put back on top as though it was meant to help shed water into the reservoirs on, on the side. And the reservoirs were dug three times deeper, each time going down to the water table. So it looks as though it had a practical function as a reservoir. It may as well also waters the sacred stuff of life. Could have had terrific, I would imagine it would have had a terrific um, symbolic importance as well. But they kept going down lower and lower to the water table, and then there's a period in which the entire Avery complex is abandoned. Um, as a, for about a 1,000 years, there's no archaeological record at all. Um, and there are foraminifera, tiny index fossils which have been found in the trench. These generally are they're like microscopic mollusks, and they curl in one direction when we have warm weather and in the opposite direction when we have cold weather. And what we see at the bottom of, of the, the lowest level of the trenches are lots of, of foraminifera indicating extreme drought. So we could have had, this could be um, a residue of, of climate change. It is a particularly misty valley, very evocative. And we have dozens of theories about Silbury Hill, um, and I look forward to hearing some of yours later. Nearby, the West Kennet Long Barrow. Now, not many people understand that there are actually nine long barrows in this valley around, say, around Avebury. Most of them have been destroyed. Some of them are quite extraordinary. This one is, of course. Um, it, you can go inside. There are very interesting features inside. Um, it looks as though it was a communal burial area in which bones were stored and then taken out. 
on processions. Because within the ditch at Avery, they found three human jaw bones. They've only ever excavated 20% of the ditch. And it may well be that people were taking their ancestors on a procession around and a bit dropped off. Um, one, one of the, the barrows which has been, the other long barrows which has been excavated is the South Street Long Barrow. And what they found was absolutely no inhumations at all. Nothing. They found plowing lines underneath. Um, it's as though it was entirely ceremonial. Um, so it's, it's another one of our mysteries of Avery. Due to the lack of fun, proper funding for archaeology... A 19th century drawing which sums up something which I find particularly marvelous, that there are an existing 4,700 barrows listed by English heritage in Wiltshire alone, the largest in any English county. And that many of these barrows, I mean, all sorts of styles, um, including things they now call fancy barrows and pond barrows, which go down up to seven meters, all sorts of, of, of excuse, Feet, um, different types, and that some of these, when excavated, you, you find nothing other inside than a layer of cremation ash. It's as though it became... It, so my supposition is that the place itself, rather like around Stonehenge, became a necropolis, a place, a spiritual place, a place to keep the, the ancestors alive. And here we have a Frisian cow, another blow-in. Um, Next to two types of barrows, which um, these were excavated by the Cunnington dynasty of, of archaeologists, and what they found in them were tiny beads, faience beads, and they think because of the size of it, we can associate that with female burials. Um, it's interesting that most of the, 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 the more prominent barrows that, uh, are, tend to be male warriors, the more subtle ones tend to be female. Girls, you might be pleased with that. Might not be. Um, the Saxon settlers, who were pagan, of course, um, eventually got round and, and occupied quite a lot of the, um, the Avery site, but not within the circle itself. Um, up between the circle and the river, heavily occupied um, by, by Saxons, and then they built... They built their church and expanded four times using local Sarsons, probably Sarsons that came from the, what is called the, um, the, well, the second avenue, which is not raised yet, um, that goes out from the west side towards Beckhampton. Now, for many years, it has been... Superstition has been blamed. Religious persecution has been blamed for the burial, burial of stones. I think we have to thank them in some, to some measure because we found a hundred thanks to the burial and um, the burials of these stones, hiding them, and some of them down as far as three meters. Quite extraordinary. And an extraordinary, another thing is that we know that they were always buried by different groups in different ways. Um, some of them just very shallowly covered over and, and tipped in. Some of them, the pits were actually tailored and cut out so that they could be dropped in and then covered over. John Aubrey, who was hunting hares, 
on the Twelfth Night, along with a number of prominent royalists from Marlborough Castle, followed a hare and the hunt into Avebury. The hunt went on, but he hung around. He had a magpie mind and an inquiring mind and was able to, to see at a, at a glance that it was something much older than, than anybody had presumed before. By the way, there's absolutely no historical record of anybody mentioning Avebury throughout the Roman period, classical period. We'd, we then get a few mentions by Leyland and the other Elizabethan topographers, but nobody appears to have actually been there. They talk about a place where Leyland, I believe it is, talks about a place where there are tombs and stones standing on end. Um, and nobody seemed to be too worried. It isn't mentioned in Doomsday Book at all. Um, so it's surprising. We have to imagine, I think we can, it's fair to imagine that it was covered with trees and a bit spooky. Anyhow, when he goes, he's 22 years old. He sees it's a temple. But it's during the period of the Second Civil War, and he's particularly worried about Puritan intolerance. He doesn't tell anybody, except a few friends at Oxford. Now, 14 years later, what he does is he, just by accident, uh, Dr. William Carleton of Bath, who's the king's physician, mentions this famous quote, Avery doth exceed Stonehenge as a cathedral does a parish church. And Charles immediately wants to meet Aubrey. Oh, and the extraordinary thing is that Carleton has been there himself, and he has decided that it was an outdoor pilgrim designed for meetings of Danish kings. It seemed a good idea at the time. Um, this is actually a copy of the sketch that, that Aubrey did from memory. It's, it's completely inaccurate, but it is interesting in that it shows, us, it shows us that there are houses up and down both sides of the streets. Um, in Aubrey's day, he does tell us that the upper bit here, the northernmost section, that road was blocked with stones, three large stones which a local landlord eventually took down to the benefit of the populace. But this is his sketch. Charles commands visits with um, the Duke of York, their wives, and Aubrey shows them around. Um, he, interesting feature of Charles, he's always seemed to be quite venal. Um, when he climbed Silvery Hill, he and his he and his brother collected vast quantities of Roman snails, those large white snails that we think are residue of the Roman occupation. And he stuffed them into his own pockets and commanded Aubrey to do so as well. And all the courtiers had to collect snails. And when they left that evening and they went to have a meal in Laycock and then they finally arrive in Bath, it's pretty good going in one night, one can believe Aubrey. But late at night, Aubrey is flattered to be summoned to the king's bedroom, where he thinks he wants to talk about Avebury, but no, he wants to ask him, how do the locals cook these snails? <laughs> Anyhow, he's made a founder member of the Royal Society, and the first paper is on Avery and Stonehenge. 
and he claims to only have brought our understanding from darkness to a thin mist. His drawing in his discourse in the Monumenta Britannica is rather bizarre, but it's surprisingly accurate. It is an ovoid. There are strange features, such as this word shillin over the church. The church is way off the paper. Um, and shillin is a dialect word which it, from which we get the word shilly-shally. So there are odd phrases in there. There's a quote here. He refers us to um, Horace's Fausti um, and mentions the Ariadne's crown. Does anybody know what Ariadne's crown is? Um, fine. Um, I'll explain it. This central northern circle here has got, I think, 11 stones here. And at the time, the corona borealis, the northern crown, as it's called, a constellation, had that many stars. Several have disappeared since. Um, in, in, the, in the myths, the Greek myths about Theseus and Ariadne, um, he, as you probably remember, he escapes with her help from the Minotaur, and they go to the island of Naxos, whereupon she meets Dionysus, lord of excess and drunken revelry, and she gets involved in the Dionysian rituals, which, which some of you may be pleased to hear, involved fornication and wild abandoned in the, in the woods. Um, Theseus leaves her to it and sails off, and the next morning, poor Ariadne wakes up and decides this was a bad idea. And, and she has the crown, that the wedding bridal um, wreath that Dionysus has given to her. And she throws it back at him. And he throws it into the sky as a reminder to people to watch what they do, really. And um, Aubrey immediately assumes that what he, that what he sees on the ground is the echo of a constellation he sees in the sky. That the corona borealis is next to a constellation called the Caput Serpents, the head of the serpent, which he places here. And he has the avenue going out as serpents. And he develops this idea, and we'll see how he does that. He does this he does a schematic drawing where he shows it going up in a straight line. Of course, it, it doesn't at all. And it ends up at what we now call the sanctuary on the top of Overton Hill. In Aubrey's day, he's very particular about this. He calls it Millstone, Millstone Hill. Apparently, people were, 70 years before Stukely arrived, were taking the stones to make millstones from. And he has a correspondence with a friend in Bath, whose name is the, he calls him the good Dr. Took. Dr. Took, you might be pleased to hear, was digging up bones on the, the sanctuary hill and pounding them into a medicinal compound, which did wonderful things for people's asthma in Bath, I have to tell you. Uh, but he's generally seemed to be a quack doctor from Bath. Do they still exist, I wonder? Well, anyhow, Aubrey is an avid follower of anything esoteric 
and his his notes are his library is full of books on the Kabbalah, and um, and he becomes a Freemason, and he assumes erroneously that Charles is one as well, presents this to him, and it falls rather flat. And it could be that it's quite an abstruse and esoteric theory. He uses isophistry, which is um, in Greek and as in Hebrew, letters have numbers so that you can write a letter and it means 40, whatever. And he uses these Pythagorean magical figure numbers such as pi and, and phi. And he includes the letter xi, which means 10, from which we get x today. And he writes in xi equals Ariadne's crown, and phi is the plant of xi. And this takes us in some very strange directions because Aubrey's had a cousin called Robert Vaughan, who was an alchemist from Wales, brother of um, the famous metaphysical poet Thomas Vaughan. And um, Robert Vaughan believed that through a path of excess, the road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom, put it that way. And he was defrocked as a priest. Um, he blew himself up in an alchemical experiment, and he's done these drawings where he shows there's a sort of Dionysian crown on the, the magical mountain that few of us will ever see, and you have to get there th- through making lots of estate, mistakes. And um, anyhow, does, the theory doesn't really resound with anybody that Aubrey tells it to. But what he does, he does show it and discuss it with Christopher Wren, another Wilcherman, his friend, and he does come to the, the idea that it's pre-historical, pre-Roman. And as he's constantly looking for the lost wisdom of the ancients, he did a campaign where he was trying to find Rosicrucians who were meant to be reincarnated Illuminati from previous societies. Um, he assumes that there's a wise and goodly priesthood called the Druids, and he ascribes it to them. And um, Christopher Wren says that it's a processional way to a druidical sacred grove built in stone on a grand scale such as a temple. Now, they may be right. However, current archaeologists will tell you and historians will tell you that, the Celtic, that, that this predates this Celtic priesthood by at least 1,500 years. That may change. I don't want to disillusion any druids in the audience. <laughs> Um, I, I, we, I have debated this with some of them, and they all carry large sticks, so <laughs> I know when to back off. <laughs> but I won't back off about this man. He is a bit of a national hero. I think, um, I, I think he should have been reading this. He should have been working for the Daily, Daily Express. My, He describes the Druids as the original patriarchal religion of the British Isles until it was corrupted by heathen immigrants. Well, some of us know that that's going on today. (laughs) Broken Britain. And um, anyhow, he, over five summers, he spent um, in Avebury. He did some marvelous work, produced a book, tried to get it on people to buy it on subscription, but nobody would. Um, a number of his most pr- likely um, patrons ran for cover because there were other people whose 
that he was disagreed with Stukeley's. Anyhow, he manages to produce it on his own bat by developing Dr. Stukeley's cure for gout. Um, Stukeley suffered from gout for his entire life, um, in spite of his cure. And, um, but what you did get when you bought a bottle of this stuff um, was a diet sheet explaining that you really shouldn't do as he did, drink too much Madeira wine with the, British, the Bishop of Rochester, um, or drink too much meat. However, while he's in Avery, he does record in his letters that he had to resort to opiate drafts to ease the pain. Now, looking around the audience, I can see that some of you have experimented with psychotropic drugs. <laughs> and so we have to give him a little bit of latitude. His imagination may have run off with him at times. Certainly, the most evocative drawings he produces, very valuable for most of us. Um, however, the scale is always exaggerated. And I can bore you all night on, on Sukli, but this is just a, a typical example. If you get to climb, if you can get up into the tower of Avery Church, this is what you will see. It is not as Stukeley draws it. The hill that he describes as Windmill Hill is actually on the right, not the left. Um, there was never a hill on uh, a windmill on Waden Hill. And he compresses and twists facts to suit his particular case. Um, it's interesting, I, I find it's interesting to look at his various interpretations of Avery over a period of, uh, of five years. He starts off with this drawing where he, he says it has double circles, which it never existed, and he doesn't have an avenue. And then thanks to the headmaster of um, St. Paul's School in London, who has acquired the copy of Monumenta, Britannica, he is able to see um, Aubrey's notes and notices the avenue. He then comes back and does a more accurate drawing of the a avenue, but he keeps in inventing things, such as a spiral southern circle, and he investigates celestial alignments, which he finally abandons, starts doing more symmetrical um, designs, and he's not just drawing these, he has a team of three, two, but sometimes three draftsmen who come down with him who are etching these. Enormous investment, and if you think that what that is to do in the field, especially in a place like Avery, these have to be, he would do his drawings, these copper plates would have to be highly polished, it would be copied via mirror and some dingy inn, he was saying in the Catherine Wheel Inn, and he did um, these dozens and dozens of them, extraordinary um, energy going into this, and he keeps changing them. He names the circles, the lunar and, and solar circle, the northern and the southern ones. He includes a fourth inner circle, but he abandons that in the next one. Um, and then he adds another ground plot. And then he starts adding hearsay evidence that he's getting from the local vicar um, about who has been destroying the stones. And he lists these people's names on here to name and shame them. <laughs> Actually, there's been a, if you're interested, there's a very good uh, uh, article by this by Brian Edwards, who's a historian from <coughs> the West of England University, 
who went into the local history and found that actually, um, well, I mean, we, we know about this from his letters anyway, that he had applied, once his book was, was rejected, he couldn't get subscribers, he applied to become a, a reverend. He becomes a very <coughs> cod reverend, by the way. His, um, his parishioners dubbed him the Archdruid, and he introduced a number of ceremonies they'd never seen or heard of before. Anyhow, but what he wants to do is to combat the free thinkers and mathematicians of the Royal Society who are misleading the country. And, but what he actually goes after are the people who have been banished from living in towns due to the, the Five Mile Acts around the, the Civil War. And they are diggers, levelers, and nonconformists, as well as, of course, Catholics and Jews. And now, these people come to Avebury, and they, can, they are not allowed to be buried in the local churchyard. They, are, um, they, have, they, they um, create three chapels for themselves. Within a few years, they create a thriving market garden because they need to get some money. And they're doing it, and Stukely and the local vicar strongly disapprove of them doing it on the land. Um, does anybody know what a digger is? Or a leveler? Well, there are great sort of proto-communist mu- um, movements invented by the, during the, the Civil War. And um, the, the levelers thought that everybody should be level. There should be no privileges, to put it briefly. And the diggers thought that everybody should be able to dig their own food. And um, the army was full, the Cromwellian army was full of diggers. Um, after the war, they were seen to be um, rather dangerous radicals, and so shut out uh, w- during the Restoration. Anyhow, what, he, what Stukely does is vilify these people and say that they are destroying most of the stones in Avebury. And he does this drawing and mentions one of them, Tom Robinson, the stone killer, um, saying that he's invented this form of vandalism. Actually, it's recorded 60 years earlier by Aubrey, um, 70 years earlier. And it turns out that the 14 stones which he labels as being destroyed by Tom Robinson are actually still there. They're underground. They, we found, we found, they've been found due to um, modern equipment, but they won't be raised. This is the final, um, I think it's the twelfth version of his ground plot, and what you you see in in it, not very distinctly here, is that part of the henge has been removed by the local landowner, Sir Adam Wilkinson, who was an interesting man. He married a, an older heiress, left her in Avery Manor, and went off to be Governor General of Jamaica. Uh, during that period, he wanted several improvements to a carriage drive and to his property, and none of this is mentioned by, a, by Stukely. Anyhow, along comes Thomas Twining, who claims, he's, he publishes a plan, pamphlet, and he says that it's actually a Roman fort, that the stones were riveting for palisades, and that the, the avenue, the, the second avenue goes right around Silbury Hill. Well, Stukely's furious about this, but he adopts the idea into his processional path from good, from evil to good. And um, by this time, he's become a, a Freemason, 
and he believes that the serpent is an ex- uh, that the Avery complex itself is a sort of massive sculpture built uh, under the direction of an Egyptian magi. Um, and now this is where, this is the spot which he describes as an awful, terrifying place. Um, Fox Covert, um, you'll be happy to know that our own dear queen exercises her racehorses here. Don't seem to be any spooks on the ground today. But this was the mouth of hell to Stukely. Does it look like it to anybody else? Okay. This myth is a very attractive one, and strong ideals do appeal. You only have to read the tabloids to know that that's true. And it, it's echoed down the age. And rather charming man, Guy Underwood, an Oxford grocer, came and did, a, did photographs which he hand-painted and toured Britain doing, doing a magic lantern show. And he perpetuates it in his... You see it here. But let's have... A look at some of his other pictures. You see very clearly that the stones are pretty much part of people's gardens and orchards at the time. But Silbury, Silbury Hill, um, excuse me, sorry, uh, Silbury Hill is very much um, a meadow. And it's, so now we'll move on to what happens in the 19th and 20th century. And this extraordinary man comes along, an eminent Victorian, Sir John Lubbock. He's not only a banker, cabinet minister, reformer, scientist, and scholar. He coins the term megalithic and neolithic. And he buys Silbury Hill and parts of Avery and gives them to the nation. And then spends about five years trying to create the Ancient Monuments Act. Having done so, he creates bank holidays so that we can enjoy them on Thomas Hardy came. Um, he wrote a very detailed study about the Devil's Den, which is within an adjoining valley. And Stukely had been very interested in, and other people, had, so did Aubrey. And he describes it as partly real, partly dream country. Um, this is a rather racy story about marital, marital infidelity. And I heartily recommend it to all of you. The Avery Giant. Um, now, he was, Frederick Kempster was born in Avery. His parents were unable to feed or clothe him because they were poor and had too many other children. He was sent to a Dr. Bernardo's home. Um, he did come back to Avery, but the house was so small he had to sleep in the corridor. And he eventually joined a freak show and um, died in Germany, where he was incarcerated during World War I. Eight foot two. Now, this is Edith Oliver. She was an author, a psychic, the first Lady Maris of Wilton. And she'd grown up with Stukeley's books in her home. She was the dean of Salisbury's daughter and grew up in the close. And some, in 1916, she borrows a car from a friend of hers, Siegfried Sassoon, the poet, and is, she's, in head of Wilch, she's the head of the Wiltshire Land Army Girls. And she 
comes through Avery in heavy rain or past it and realizes when she gets to the Beckhampton roundabout that Avery's just over there, so she diverts to go and see it. Well, apparently, she drove down an avenue which wasn't there, arrived in Avery to see a fair going on, and there was a banana boat swinging, and she could hear um, the popping of, of, piss, of guns. As they, they, there was a coconut chai, but also a, a rifle range. And then it's so wet that she drives on. She comes back a few days later and says, that was a wonderful fair, and so people say, well, there wasn't one. And then she goes and she tells her friends, and they say, don't tell anybody else, please. And she carries on like this, absolutely certain in her own mind that she's seen it. And when um, Alexander Keeler eventually comes with his archaeologists to restore the site, Edith Oliver turns up and corners him and says, there is another avenue. Why aren't you raising it? And um, they talk, and what he describes this southwestern section as the Cinderella section, he tells her. He says, she may come to the ball, she may not, but they haven't found anything in it. And so she asks him to get a, a strong man with an iron bar, and they go up and down, and she says, get him to prod there. And they find nine stones, which are raised in six weeks, the fastest but Keeler, who's very superstitious, is also worried about his reputation, and not much is meant, it's never mentioned, other than by a man called um, Ian McPhail, who witnessed it. So this could be an apocryphal story. I think it's rather nice. Anyhow, Avery shrinking. Aubrey saw 73 standing stones, Stukely 29, Richard Colt Hoare recorded 17. By 1920, only 11 were standing. And in 1933, when Robert Byron went, he just, friend of John Betjeman, for the Shell Guide, he wrote, Avery is a ghost. Alexander Keeler devoted much of his fortune um, every summer for about 12 years to excavating Windmill Hill and then buying up parts of Avery and, and raising stones. Um, he was, he's still thought of very controversially in the village because he knocked down a number of cottages and working businesses, um, the black, the, a blacksmith shop, the, um, a petrol station, a shoe, a shoe repair shop, um, and a baker shop, and a butcher, all went. Um, and so he was hated, and still hated. And when he sold up to the National Trust, one of the terms and conditions of the Morvan Institute was that they carry on his restoration. And so they knocked down a few more houses, which made them enemies for generations within the villagers. When Paul Nash came, he came in 33, first of all, 1933, and then he comes back, and he declares that all archaeologists should be banned from the site. It should be left in its natural state. However, Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, arranged that profits from seven pillars of wisdom would be put aside by his brother to buy Overton Hill, which joins up with the sanctuary. And Bill Brandt goes with John Piper in 1944. 
and they've just heard the story of the barber surgeon stone. This stone, so this is a ghostly picture of it. Does anybody know about the barber surgeon stone? Okay. Um, Stuart Piggott, who went on to be a prominent archaeologist later, was an apprentice archaeologist working on this. And they found, and they were digging, and it's one of the pits that Edith Oliver had pointed out, dig here. And they found that there was a, it was two meters down, quite a depth, and there were, this pit had been dug exactly in the shape of that stone. And when they started to raise it, they found the skeleton underneath. The skeleton had not actually been crushed. It had been placed there. And in the pocket of the skeleton was a pair of scissors and a probe and three coins. And the coins all dated from the reign of St. Stephen. So we more or less know when this happened. Keeler arranged for the bones to be collected and put in a box. And he was immediately confronted by a Catholic priest who demanded them to bury in his church and a pagan priest who said, these are our bones, we want them. And he thought that he didn't want to give them up, he wanted to keep them for science, and and so he sent them to the Royal College of Surgeons, and this is 1943, no, 39, and they arrive just after the Phony War, and according to Keeler, the Royal College of Surgeons was hit by one of the first bombing raids, and the, the, stone, the, the bones were atomized. So a, a great superstition grew up about this. Was this man, had he been helping, was he a barber surgeon, had he been helping bury the stones? And that's why Bill Brandt came and took the picture. It, in the past five years, it's turned out, Mike Pitts, the former arch, head archaeologist at Avery, was rooting around in the Natural History Museum and found a box that said Avebury. And inside were the barber surgeon stones, bones. And so there's a current um, investigation going on about them. It looks very much as though he, it, that it coincides with a period when there were arguments between the church at Sirencester and the church in Avebury about who owned the land, and that it could have been somebody who was just conveniently tucked away. We don't know but it's a sort of detective story, a medieval detective story for us all. There are other odd things, such as in the old monastic grange, they found a skeleton with a nail in its head, in its skull. And there are rumors of murders in the avenue, medieval murders. Anyhow, John Piper goes with, John, with Bill Brandt. This is, he's, from a boy, he was a mentor member of the Wiltshire Archaeological Society. And this is his painting of Overton Hill, bought by T. E. Lawrence, from the West Kennet Long Barrow before the restoration of the West Kennet Long Barrow, when it was a jumble of stones. And Piper painted the Devil's Den and Avery several times, very, very keen on the area. More artists come in. John Betjeman, of course, they're all part of the same circle, Betjeman uh, met his wife Penelope in the mayoress of, of Wilson's house, um, and um, obviously long time, long friend with, with Piper did the shell guys together. And this is Faye Godwin's photograph taken in Avery in 1966, and and the words from John Betjeman's "Summoned by Bells" 
On a still moonlit night, Avery seems peopled by ghosts, and the old church and cottages of the village seem new and insignificant. Um, David Inshaw is, was a member. He's, his work is on sale in Bath, a number of galleries. He was a member of the very influential um, Brotherhood of, of Ruralists group. And this is his painting of... He's done dozens of paintings of Avery and Silbury in particular. He lives in Devices. And um, he's kindly lent me some of the pictures to show you. But anyway, this is um, probably one of the most significant ones he did, his most famous one, of the bank. Now, how are we doing? Okay. Um, time to wrap in five minutes. Oh. You, right, I started late. Ten minutes. <laughs> Just getting to the... The, the, the toothsome bits. Okay, conflicts over ownership today. Um, as you can see, stones have a magnetic attraction even to sheep. Um, there are a number of New Age theories. There are a number of people um, who claim, for all sorts of good reasons, um, to find this a very important spiritual site and are in conflict with the managers of it. And for the past one of the most obvious bits of conflicts of the past 35 years, we've had probably more crop circles and formations than any other part of Britain. Um, the locals, and some of the locals who have told me that what, they were young farmers, they made them. And it was a great way of getting pocket money because they would put an honesty box up, two pounds to see the crop circle. Um, one of them had this great idea that he was going to get a... Um, a muck spreader out on the hill and spread slurry, which would produce a sort of reverse crop circle. So, and he would put up a sign saying, two pounds to see the crop circles. <laughs> so there's a kind of jocularity within the local community, but it is seen as something sacrosanct by people who interpret the meaning of these things and who say that they're being channeled by aliens. Even if you fake them, they're being channeled. Um, one of the problems, a practical problem for the farmers, is that when a crop circle appears, people come and visit it, and they tread the corn into the ground, and then it ruins their crop rotation, and they get less money next year. This has not been able to be worked out between the people who appreciate the crop circles. Most of them appear in the same fields, um, and it could be possible to persuade them not to strim crop circles, but now there is a policy. As soon as they appear, the farmers will go out and strim them. And it's possibly related to the fact that they, be, they have confrontations with people who come from all over the world who believe Stukely's myths and tell them that they're ignorant peasants. It doesn't go down well telling them. <laughs> now, this upset lots of people, but tickled others. Model makers made this wonderful thing that went over Avebury, a, a flying saucer, and then they got into trouble for doing it. Um, two uh, prominent, one, one neighbor of mine um, and another one who's a frequent visitor, um, pagan and New Age groups. This is the very potent Arthur King of the Britons on the, left, on the right, and um, he's changed his name by Deepole. 
and um, he has a great following. And, Her- and Gordon Rhymes, who is, some believe, the reincarnation of Hearn the Hunter, um, Arthur and his war band have demanded an end to all archaeological digs. And they've managed to persuade the National Trust that it, to put up a sacred site on their signs. And they're currently campaigning for eight celebrations a year, religious celebrations a year, and they're probably going to get it. Um, the numbers, 28,000 went to Stonehenge last year. Only 6,000 came to Avery. Generally, it is policed. Um, it, it is a big cost to the community in terms of policing, but most of the trouble is handled by a group of people who call themselves the Guardians who are allied to the pagan groups. And if somebody gets completely out of their head on, on drugs, they deal with them. So we've got very few arrests, although somebody died in the churchyard last, last summer from an overdose of drugs. Um, I'm sorry this isn't coming up as it should do. Okay. Um, We've got all sorts of different... There are, my last count, there were nine druidical groups, more chiefs than Indians, some very pretty frocks, um, and there are all sorts of diverse groups, um, and then there are some federations that hold them together. Um, they're basically all nice people. Um, <laughs> I think it's a pity that we can't have ceremonies like this, I have to tell you, they're old German girls. Some of you will recognize that from their, their coiffures. <laughs> um, this is my neighbor, Terry Dobley, uh, Dobney, and he is our resident druid and keeper of the stones. Um, Terry has, shall I say, individual ideas about the stones, and he takes guided tours around. Um, he is now face-to-face with one of the faces which he claims were carved by acid by the Druids. Um, this particular stone he calls the Pan Stone has 19 faces. Terry assures me that he doesn't take drugs. <laughs> he also assures me that this carving, which looks to me modern, is um, a Druidical symbol that is proof that it was used as a sacrifice stone. Um, it is the Awen, a symbol invented by a convicted forger called Yolo Morganog. Um, however, um, it was also the symbol adopted by the suffragette movement, and it looks remarkably like the, the British Army broad arrow. Th- magical things happen. Um, Terry's pointing out these mystically charged lichen in the shape of a Sanskrit symbol. I thought it looked like magic marker, but he assures me it's not. <laughs> he tells me that this arrow was carved to show them which way to point towards the sundown. I don't think they needed that. But anyhow, archaeologists, a geologist has pointed out to me that it has traces, uh, that sedimentary rock, and there are traces of petrified wood in it, so that it was formed when the stone was formed. And... Archaeologists point out that these particular stones were only raised in the 1930s, and so we have no idea what the true orientation of that arrow would be. Um, there is a wide belief that under the beach cops, which David um, Inshaw painted, which has got this wonderful root system, that Tolkien was inspired to create his book, The Lord of the Rings. 
However, Lord Snowden, who took the photo on the left, assures me that this was photographed in Oxfordshire. Um, Tolkien began to get rather fed up, according to his son in old age, of people coming along and saying, you put special messages in that book for me, didn't you? And, and said that some of his fans were too easily ignited. Um, a hand-fasted couple recently, under the old man of Avery, as those trees are called, or the sacred trees, um, there are problems with the trees. They're growing 30 feet up on the bank. Um, be- beaches, as Martin will happily tell you, I'm sure he's a great arboreal,ist um, are shallow-rooted trees. And so when you get mature beaches, which are called hoarded drawing of those in 1815, they're at their height. There have been plans to prune them, lop them. They are going to be resisted very emotionally, but otherwise they're going to fall down. And heaven forbid that some, a tree should fall on somebody in this insurance-conscious day of ours. We've, human race has survived so far, but there are, I think, 40 trees being cut down this week in Avery. Anyhow, um, currently there are a group of militant druids who are opposed by other druids but have a large backing who have forced an inquiry in, in the museum. They want the return of this child skeleton who they call Charlie and they want seven other skeletons and they want to rebury them in, around the landscape, particularly Charlie at Windmill Hill, Terry the resident druid and um, keeper of the stones is on record as saying that what people don't understand is that until you actually put the skeletons back in, the lights won't come on. Mike Pitts, editor of um, British Archaeology, is on record as saying there are very small numbers who hold beliefs that they are chosen as druids and have spiritual links with these places and the remains found in them. The notion that they should be custodians of these remains is preposterous. So there's a standoff there, and every time I see um, Dr. Cleel from the museum, she tells me how many more letters she has to write and how much time this is taking up. It, it, um, and frankly, um, some, some, some of the residents call me old-fashioned. I don't see the point in putting them back in the landscape where somebody can just dig them up or they'll rot. We haven't even had a chance to do carbon dating on them yet. Um, the Swallowhead Spring, which is mentioned by Stukely as an, a particularly important site, has become a sacred sh- shrine. And um, it's interesting to note that Aubrey, who wrote the first natural history of Wiltshire, says that there are five Swallowheads and what they are are lism holes that open up in the dry bed of a chalk stream. And so when the, 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 the water comes back, most of the, the rivers around here are called born, which means they're winter borns. They come out as a result of the rising aquifers. The water disappears down them. This one um, is, has become very much a sacred shrine. And the local farmer has put these sanding stones up so that people can go and have ceremonies there and drum all night and not bother anybody, and that's fine. Um, Now, there are a number of prayer flags or spells or whatever you want to call them that are put up there. And, in fact, there's a lot of emotion because 
I've, I've met a number of people who's unfortunately have had um, miscarried babies or lost children, and they they take the the cremation ash up there, or they buried the placentas up there, and for them it's very, very important. Um, however, um, bits of this willow tree broke and fell over, as willow trees do. They quickly regenerate. But when the farmer went up with a chainsaw, um, he found that he was getting death threats. And you can see some of the prayer flags on it. And he was then... Uh, reprimanded by DEFRA, the Department of Food and Rural Affairs, and told that he had to go on a course and how to manage a sacred site. So we have, a, we have an extraordinary countervailing power um, situation. Honey, I think that it's wonderful that Avery is still free to all night, that they haven't put it in a cage. And I would go there and meet a few of the ghosts, if I were you. Mm -hmm. And thank you very much for listening.